Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tassiography or palmistry. <laughs> it's a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me once again here to save the day because I've prepared absolutely nothing <laughs> for this one, it's my co-host, Frank Gaylard. Well, this is awkward because I haven't prepared anything. Oh, well, let's wrap it up then. <laughs> How can people get in contact with us, Frank? No, just kidding. <laughs> Amazingly, I come bearing gifts, but um, it's all been a bit of a mess, you know, with the conference, etc. And uh, to try and avoid as much work as possible, I actually was in New Caledonia for the week before the conference. <laughs> I very much noticed that, Frank, as I was preparing, <laughs> that you'd uh, skillfully avoided things once again. Yeah, that's a pro move right there. Get out <laughs> of town. But when I was there, um, we were staying on one of those huts that's over the water, all very swanky. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was sitting there mixing, a, a drinking a mixed drink without a little paper umbrella or anything. <laughs> and out of the corner of my eye, I saw this uh, snakehead poking out from under the house. Like the house is up on stilts over water. And yeah. this yellow and black, it was small, like the head was really short. And I reckon the snake was probably only about 30 centimeters long. I don't like snakes a lot. So I called <laughs> called the guy from reception. And by the time he got there, the snake had slithered under the house. And uh, I said, well, what are we going to do? And he said, well, nothing. It's under the house. And I wasn't convinced by this. And he said, look, don't worry about it. Its mouth is really small and it's got really small teeth. So the only place it can bite you, he said, is in the webbing between your fingers or between your toes. <laughs> and uh, so he went off. And then the snake came out. And it turns out it was a five-foot snake with a very small head. Oh, It was, it was massive. Deceptive. And so I called him back and he arrived. And I can tell you that he did not behave like someone who could only be bitten <laughs> between the webbings of his fingers. He kicked this poor water snake out into the water, but he looked petrified about it. He was clearly backed into a corner, having told me that you shouldn't be scared of it. And it could swim really well. Well, it comes up the stairs that go down into the water and you're meant to pull the stairs back up. So um, you've got your own little stairwell, which you couldn't yeah. swim because a couple of Australian tourists have been eaten by sharks like a week ago, <laughs> just nearby. Anyway, enough about my <laughs> my ordeals. Sounds like fun, mate. <laughs> how was uh, how did you pull up after the conference? Oh, it was a, it's a big it's a big week. It's a very big week. Not a lot of not a lot of sleep, but very satisfying to get to the end of it. We had eleven thousand delegates in oh, the wow. end, and the majority of which are from low and middle income yeah. countries. Get for free, absolutely. So yeah, it's a very important, That's incredible thing to do. Oh. So it was good. You did an amazing job, along with Vickers and everyone else, Amanda and Murph and all the team. You did a lot of panels as well. You seem yeah. to be doing all sorts of things, chest and MSK and brain yeah, stuff. Yeah, just making stuff up, really. Yeah, it's looking good, though. You have your neon pineapple in the background, depth of field, beautiful oh, yeah. lighting. You sound great. It's yeah. amazing, though, how each year you get more equipment. You know, you get a better camera and then you get a better screen yeah. and you get a better yeah. microphone. Cause Speaking of sounding great. Gonna- oh, you're not going to bring this up again, are you? <laughs> so I'm, I'm listening into to day one of the conference and we get to this panel and it's like a panel that I recorded with Frank and, and Derek, I think. 
and I start talking in this panel. I'm like, what has happened to my audio? What has Gaylard done to this? Because Frank edited it. It sounded uh, like a jockey. Not that there's anything wrong with sounding like a jockey, but sometimes it's nice just to hear your own voice sounding at least similar to what you do sound like. Manly and deep and sonorous. <laughs> it's like one of those social media things where somebody sees a child in a photo and realises that their retinal, you know, red light reflex is gone and mm. says, oh, this this kid must have like a retinoblastoma or something. It's happened like that for you, Gayla, because I said, yes. you know, I sound like a chipmunk. And I said, I, you know, sometimes in the back of your recordings, I can hear this little high pitched squeak from your connections or something in your room. And you're like, I can't hear anything. Yeah. And so well, you went and got a hearing test. I did. And uh, no surprises, I guess, given this <laughs> information. <for> <laughs> but I do have mild to moderate high frequency hearing loss. Getting the audio test is a pretty strange. I've never had. Have you had an audio audiology no, or whatever? No. So there's a place around the corner, and cunningly, it's situated at the crossing of trams. Now, for for people who live in cities that don't have trams, they're trains that run on the road, and when they cross, they make you know train sounds. So they've got this soundproofed booth that's roughly coffin size that they squeeze you into and every time the tram goes past they have to stop doing the test because it's too noisy (laughs) and they do it you know with high pitched different frequencies different loudness and you have to push a button I was pretty sure I was going to get an abnormal result because at one time she says okay well I just want you to tell me at what audio level you would feel this to be comfortable to listen to and so and she speaks to me and says does this sound okay to you? And I'm like, hmm, I'd turn it up. And she looks at me and she says, okay, does this sound okay to you? And I'm like, hmm, I'd turn it up some more. And she kept looking more and more like, really? (laughs) So yes. Anyway, I don't know what that means for my audio. It probably means I get out of doing even more work, Dixon, because I can't (laughs) mix my own audio now. Not true. Uh, So what have you brought along today anyway, Gaylar, to show and tell? No, it's not show and tell, Dixon. That's too prescriptive the politically correct term now at schools is show and share oh show and share all right what have you got to show i'm not telling you anything dixon i'm sharing anyway today class i've brought a readful (laughs) with mr james king james is a neurosurgeon who works at the royal melbourne hospital he's got an interest in pituitary and endoscopic neurosurgery we're sort of rough contemporaries he was doing his phd in neurosurgery or neuroscience while i was a neurosurgery resident. And a number of years ago, when I was writing the draft to the article on Radiopedia called Pituitary MRI and Approach, I thought it would be good to ask a surgeon some questions as to what they needed to know from our reports. And now that it's a few years down the track, I thought it was a good opportunity to revisit the topic and have him on the podcast. Mm. But before we listen to it, Dixon, this is my chance. I've got a question for you. Oh, a little quiz or something. A little quiz. This is not spot the fake, but spot the correct answer. Okay. And this is based on an article called The Pituitary Gland, A Brief History by (laughs) Solomon Alexander Kaplan. And the PubMed link will be in the show notes for anyone who's interested. And here we go. All right. Are you ready, Dixon? Mm Mm-hmm. Spot the correct answer. Okay. Since Galen's time until the early 20th century, the pituitary gland was thought to be Mm -hmm. A, the conduit through which nasal mucus was removed from the brain, 
mm-hmm. B, the seat of rational thought as it is an unpaired structure and allowed for the unity of inputs from the nervous system. Or C, the cause of hysteria due to the pituitary gland becoming malpositioned. <laughs> well, I'm going to skillfully avoid discussing option C and just say that one that one is not correct. Um, I'm not getting into the hysteria debate. Well, hysteria was malpositioned uterus, right? That mm. was the theory behind hysteria. So you're correct that C is not correct. That was different organ. Excellent. Good start. And A, the conduit through which nasal mucus was removed from the brain. Does that mean like like brain mucus or actual nasal mucus? Why would you get nasal mucus in your brain? Wouldn't you have like some brain mucus? I know that obviously Rathke's pouch comes from like the primitive oral cavity. So there is maybe, kind of a connection there between the Maybe they thought that blowing your nose was actually the fluid around your brain coming out. I don't mm. know. So I'm not sure about that one. I could have believed that. And then the seat of rational thought as it is an unpaired structure and allowed for a unity of inputs from the nervous system. I mean, with the mucus one, they were definitely into all these humours and stuff, right? The four humours, the the biles and the blood. Hmm. Um, But rational thought, I mean, it is a nice, would be a nice little explanation. It does sit very nicely just underneath (laughs) the brain. Just behind your eyes. Come on, lock it in, that Dixon. Sounds like, yeah, I'm going to lock. I'm going to lock in B. I reckon they would have thought that. Oh, I got him. No, <laughs> you're wrong. B ah. is the pineal gland, not the pituitary. Ah. And that was that... Rene Descartes. You know the old Monty Python song, the philosopher's song by yeah, Monty yeah. Python. I Rene Descartes was I a am. drunken fart. I drink, mm. therefore I am. Yeah. Him. He <laughs> thought it was the pineal, but no, apparently the pituitary. They thought nasal mucus was somehow involved. It does strike me that some of these ancient anatomists didn't actually spend a lot of time looking at bodies. They just kind of made stuff up. The arteries are full of air. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Enough. Enough silliness. Let's get on to it. Let's listen to an approach to pituitary MRI with James King. All right. And then I'll be back to uh, give you my thoughts on it, Gaylord, and give give you a report card. Let's do it. Hello, James, and thank you for joining me. Good evening, Frank, and thanks for inviting me. So we call these Readful episodes because what I'm going to do is read out a Radiopedia article. This one is Pituitary MRI and Approach. And as we go, we'll stop and have a bit of a chat about the content and other random non-radiology related things. Sounds good, Frank. Now, for anyone who's going to go to the article, I've accessed this on the 18th of July, 2023. So if you're reading this at some time in the future, you may find that things have changed because that is the beauty of Radiopedia. All right, so here we go. The article starts. A systematic approach to the pituitary region is crucial as small lesions can have a profound impact on the patient and can be subtle even on high-quality, dedicated MRI imaging. Successful assessment of the pituitary region relies not only on a clear understanding of the local anatomy, but also on the relatively wide variety of pathologies that occur in the region. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree. In comparison to other aspects of neuroradiology, it does seem to be quite variable quality in the imaging and the reporting of pituitary MRI. That would be my experience by reading radiology reports as well. And I think we'll come to some of those issues as we read along. 
So talking about how we image the pituitary region, the next section is imaging protocol. A typical targeted MRI examination of the pituitary region includes coronal and sagittal small field of view T1 and T1 post-contrast images, as well as dynamic contrast-enhanced coronal images, which are critical for the identification of small microadenomas. T2-weighted sequences are also often included. Please refer to the article on pituitary gland protocol MRI for a detailed discussion of this topic. Now, I only really work at one place. I do see external scans. You presumably, James, receive scans from all over the place. Do you see a lot of heterogeneity in how pituitary MRIs are performed, or is it pretty standard? No, I think there's a lot of heterogeneity and a lot of variability in the quality. So I think the field of view can be an issue sometimes. I do find the magnified images useful. And the quality of the dynamic imaging is often very variable. I actually do quite like the fine slice T2 coronals. I think they're useful to identify the relationship of the optic nerve and chiasm to the pathology, particularly with larger and more complex lesions. They do provide some information on the consistency of the tumour, which is often a significant factor in the difficulty or otherwise of the surgery. So from my side, if you can do those, I'm I'm grateful. Yeah, so I I actually agree with you. I think T2 is a great sequence almost always. You never regret having one. And it does have such good intrinsic contrast resolution and generally has better spatial resolution as well so that you do see anatomical structures, particularly vessels, really well. All right, the next section is the normal appearance of the pituitary region on MRI. Before being able to interpret MRIs of the region, it is important to understand the normal anatomy of the pituitary gland and surrounding structures. And then it lists the surrounding structures, which are the pituitary gland itself, cavernous sinus, optic nerve, optic chiasm, optic tract, supracellar cistern, and third ventricle. The anterior and posterior parts of the pituitary gland are distinct on MRI. The anterior part is iso-intense on both T1 and T2 weighted images, and the posterior pituitary has intrinsically high T1 signal and is of a hypo-intense signal on T2-weighted images. I mean, it's particularly important for the surgeon to be able to identify the posterior pituitary at surgery to prevent post-operative diabetes insipidus, but it can be difficult, particularly with distorted anatomy. I find it's typically whiter in colour than the normal anterior gland, which is more yellow, and it's a little more granular to feel with the instruments. Um, Ed Laws is a famous pituitary surgeon based in the U.S., used to say that the posterior gland looks like oatmeal. Um, Oh, right. It can be on occasion difficult to differentiate from adenoma. And actually in small tumours like Cushing's cases, where you're working in a small cellar, I think that's actually sometimes where you can run into trouble with the posterior gland. So it it is a challenge in in some cases to, to really be clear of where that posterior gland is sitting. So would you be identifying the posterior gland before entering the gland itself from the inferior surface or when you're rummaging around in the anterior pituitary like a pig after truffles (laughs) it's typically you know more in that posterior bank but there's not usually a good plane i i I think in some cases if there's a rathke's cleft cyst in the pars intermedia and you get into that cyst you can very nicely see the posterior gland behind that but but it's not often as as clearly demarcated as that and do you look at the images preoperatively to get a sense of where you're expecting to find the gland Yes, both the posterior gland and the anterior gland, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the posterior gland is more more challenging to find in general. Yeah, and also importantly in 
some percentage, probably around 10 to 15% of patients when we scan them, there doesn't seem to be intrinsic T1 hyperintensity, even though the posterior pituitary is normal. And in those cases, if you don't see a posterior pituitary bright spot in the cellar, you need to make sure that it's not ectopic. And then we need to look to make sure that the infundibulum is of normal thickness because in ectopic glands, the infundibulum is small. And and if you see a normal sized infundibulum and no ectopic, then it's probably just one of those one in 10 patients. Okay. So reading on during the dynamic contrast enhanced sequence, contrast can be seen to wash into the gland from the infundibulum and gradually spread to the more peripheral parts of the gland. The blood supply to the pituitary, it's not part of this article, but it's worth just refreshing everyone's knowledge of this. Pituitary is one of those weird places that has a portal circulation. So the arterial supply is to the hypothalamus and then post-capillary blood drains into uh, the portal circulation that surrounds the infundibulum down to the anterior pituitary from the infundibular gland junction and then out to the rest of the gland. And that's how the local uh, hormone control occurs. But this enhancement is, I reckon, the most common cause of overcalling microadenomas, particularly when the clinical history is of a vague elevated prolactin. Yeah. And the area of delayed enhancement in the periphery of the gland gets called a microadenoma. Do you see this in patients that are referred to you from general practitioners or endocrinologists? Yeah, I would say it's a very common problem, Frank. I think it creates a lot of sometimes unnecessary anxiety. Typically, it's in younger women with a degree of menstrual irregularity and a modest elevation in their prolactin. And they typically have a bulky gland on imaging with often like a smooth convex upper border. I mean, I think we, we both agree that the degree of elevation of the prolactin level is very helpful in interpreting the imaging. And we have been trying to put the actual pro- prolactin level in the referral for the scan now. I even have a template on yep. my reports <laughs> that includes a sort of slightly passive aggressive statement about elevated prolactin is really not very helpful. And yep. and you're right, because once someone says likely microadenoma, it's really difficult to unlabel these, at least from, from the experience I get. These patients, no matter what you say in a report, just keep coming back. Some of them even yeah. get treated with bromocryptine and their prolactin goes back to normal. And then for the rest of their life, presumably they're going around saying that they're cancer survivors. And yeah. at least a proportion of these patients have never had an adenoma. Do you see that as well? Yeah, I think I think that is definitely the case. And I'm very reluctant to treat patients with a dopamine agonist without a discrete lesion on imaging, because I think you really don't have an objective measure of the success or otherwise of your treatment. But yeah, it's a difficult area. I manage these patients in conjunction with the endocrinologists, but I do think you end up having to image them over time to give them the reassurance that there's no no sort of serious pathology for them to, to have to deal with. The way I teach my registrars is if you're in any doubt that there's a microadenoma, leave room for the next study to say that there isn't. Yeah. Because once you make a definitive diagnosis, you barely can ever get rid of it. And it has lots of implications, not just for the patient's mental state, but also from uh, insurance and travel and and all sorts of issues. So err on the side of rescanning. And if it's a true microadenoma, the next radiologist will also see it and also call it. Whereas if it's just 
a 30 second vague delay peripherally, let it go and do ask for the, the values of the prolactin. That's really important as well. All right, let's move on because this is the other area that I think causes a lot of problems and it's age dependent changes. The pituitary gland volume changes depending on hormonal status and what would be a normal gland in one demographic would be grossly abnormal in another. Generally speaking, young adults have larger glands than older individuals and hormonally active individuals, puberty and pregnancy, have the largest glands. These plump glands completely fill the pituitary fossa and have a convex upper border whereas older individuals will have a mostly empty pituitary fossa with a deflated and thinned gland lying on the floor of the cella. Although one should always be wary of measurements, they can serve to quantify what may otherwise seem overly subjective impressions. These are reasonable maximal figures for the height of the gland. In children under 12 years of age, 6 millimeters with the upper surface flat or slightly concave, Puberty, 10 millimeters with the upper surface convex, and it's more striking in females. In young adults, males, 8 millimeters and females, 9 millimeters, which seems like a very small difference. Pregnancy, 12 millimeters. And in older adults, over 50 years of age, gradually decreases in size. Yeah, I mean, I think in pregnancy particularly, I've even seen significant bitemporal visual field defects from just a diffusely enlarged gland. That's obviously very important not to be treating those patients. And the ones that I've seen, typically the the visual deficit recovers very quickly after delivery, usually within the first one to two weeks. So it's quite surprising sometimes how enlarged the gland can be in late pregnancy. I've got a a very nice case where a patient presented with a bitemporal hemianopia during pregnancy and had a scan and had a really bulky but otherwise normal physiological gland. Then she got followed up and her gland went back to normal. And then she got pregnant again and the gland went back up and did exactly Mm. the same thing. So it it really is just a physiological response. And I guess it's not surprising considering everything else that happens during pregnancy, but it is a trap. Yeah. I think it's sometimes those patients that have a fairly shallow cellar, Mm -hmm. not a very large cellar and the chiasm sitting you know, right on the top of the gland and and they're more prone to the visual deficit. Yeah, right. Of course. Okay. Now, before we continue, we, uh, I mean, Andrew Dixon asked me to do this really, but for a bit of a change of pace, we like to ask our guests some random sort of get to know you questions. And one of the ones that's uh, topical amongst radiologists is whether we listen to music while reporting. Do you listen to music while operating? Uh, Frank, in training, I certainly had to endure the musical tastes of my (laughs) mentors, uh, ranging from, you know, Mozart to Bob Dylan. But I have to confess that I like the room quiet, uh, especially during critical parts of the surgery. It's not that popular, but but it works for me. All right. So systematic approach to interpretation. As with all studies, having a systematic approach to the pituitary region is essential if subtle lesions are to be detected. There is no single correct way to do this. And what is presented here is merely a personal approach. Key structures to identify and assess in every study include the pituitary gland, including posterior pituitary bright spot and infundibulum, the optic nerves, chiasm and tracts, the diaphragma cella and boundaries of the pituitary fossa, boundaries of the cavernous sinus and Meckel's cave, internal carotid arteries and branches, dynamic enhancement of the pituitary. The pituitary gland itself should be examined to ensure that it is age appropriate in size and normal in signal, 
the infundibulum should be midline and the posterior pituitary bright spot should be sought, although it's not always visible. And here it links to the article on ectopic posterior pituitary. The dynamic enhanced coronal images should be viewed in such a way as to view wash in of contrast at each location. Depending on the PAC system used and the scanning protocol, this can be tricky. So this last point, I think, is something that I see done badly often amongst radiology trainees, and it causes enormous problems to interpretation of dynamic imaging. If you don't set yourself up so that you're looking at the same location and scrolling through time, if you just scroll through images one to six at zero and then seven to 12 at time one, et cetera, you never can really appreciate that dynamic flow of contrast. Yeah. I mean, I think that dynamic imaging is critical for the for the microadenoma, especially Cushing's disease. When you're an operating surgeon, you've been told the patient has Cushing's disease and you're exploring the gland. It's great to have some aspect that you can focus your attention on because exploring a normal gland is a very miserable experience. <laughs> so what? when you don't know where the adenoma is, do you just poke around until you find an area that's of different texture and color yeah so if you if you're confident they have pituitary cushing's disease or based on the biochemistry and the endocrinology workup we would do petrosal sinus sampling but that's often pretty unreliable but i would expose the whole gland make a series of vertical incisions in the gland uh, usually six or seven across the the gland which is about a centimeter in in width and you take it right back to the posterior pituitary and, and, and really just looking at high magnification for a small lesion. But it's not all that rewarding in my experience. And then typically you then remove the sort of lateral inferior and, and lateral ex, sort of extent of the gland for pathology. And um, you, know, you, will, you will cure a certain percentage of patients in that way, but it's, yep. it's uh, not, not the most uh, elegant surgery. All right, moving on. So the next step is the optic nerves, optic chiasm, and optic tracts should be carefully assessed as even small lesions can lead to visual symptoms, which are a common indication for imaging of the area. The relationship of the chiasm to the pituitary is important, and a prefixed located above the tuberculum cella or postfixed located above the dorsum cella chiasm should be identified. Extreme care should be taken to ensure that there are no compressive lesions, such as a two to three millimeter meningioma. The optic nerves should be followed as far anteriorly as possible on coronal T2 images, if obtained, to assess for the presence of increased signal within the nerve. I mean, I think for paracella meningioma, it's particularly important to know preoperatively the relationship between the tumor, the chiasm, and the optic nerves to determine the approach and, and also the need to explore the optic canal. Coronal and sagittal contrast enhanced imaging is very useful. And generally for me, those that arise medially below the optic nerves and chiasm are best approached from an endoscopic endonasal route. And those ones that are based on the clinoid and more laterally are best approached by craniotomy, either the eyebrow or a standard terional. So it's, it's important to have good quality imaging to try and work out the best approach. And presumably a small tongue of tumor extending into the optic canal would you open the optic canal when you're doing transnasally? Yeah, so you can drill out along the optic nerve and then using a sort of a, a Carlin blade, which is like a right angle knife, you can open the, the dura and usually peel out that, that tumor unless it's densely adherent to the dura in that location. Usually it's just a tongue yep. that will be able to be pulled out. And, and that's the beauty, I think, of the endoscopic approach because that's very difficult to get 
get via a craniotomy. Yeah, and and important to identify it preoperatively to know whether you need to go hunting in that area, presumably. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And usually the imaging is quite good at showing that. Yeah, I mean, the whole reason for doing the surgery is to usually improve or salvage vision. Yeah. And if you leave tumour in the optic canal, it's really going to compromise the outcome of the surgery. Right. Yep. Okay. So moving on. Following this, the boundaries of the pituitary fossa should be examined to ensure that the fossa is not enlarged or eroded from a previous mass or hydrocephalus or intracranial hypertension. At this time, the bone marrow signal in the clivus should also be assessed. And uh, this links to another article on bone marrow signal of the clivus, which is complicated and uh, probably not terribly relevant to our discussion today. So then the article moves on to the cavernous sinuses and Meckel's cave should be examined for symmetry and normal anatomy. The visible arteries should all be inspected for obvious aneurysms or malformations. This is best done on T2 weighted imaging if provided. Although in a typical pituitary study, no dedicated arterial imaging is present, finding an asymptomatic aneurysm can be a life-saving event. In contrast, missing an obvious aneurysm which later ruptures is a tragedy. Particularly relevant regional aneurysms include anterior communicating artery aneurysms, medially projecting carotid cave aneurysms, superiorly projecting ophthalmic artery aneurysms, terminal internal carotid artery aneurysms, and posterior communicating artery and basilar tip aneurysms. It is also crucial to identify an aberrant course of the carotid or other aberrant vessels, especially if surgery is likely. Yes, I mean, I think of all the sort of unexpected findings that you don't want to encounter in an endoscopic endonasal approach, an aneurysm is probably at the top of the list. Uh, It's a very difficult problem to salvage if you get you know, carotid rupture intraoperatively. Interesting, I recall a case, you rang me preoperatively, the patient was in hospital, Frank, yeah. for a pituitary macroadenoma and had a, you know, moderate-sized cavernous carotid aneurysm, which I then elected to treat her with primary radiotherapy because I wasn't yeah. too keen to explore her. So, I mean, I think that was a satisfactory treatment for her. And the really important thing to remember is that partially thrombosed aneurysms or slow-flowing aneurysms can have signal that doesn't look like a vessel. Right. And so you can end up with something that you might think is a hemorrhagic macroadenoma or a craniopharyngioma or or something weird. And so you should always ask yourself, could this possibly be an aneurysm? And in fact, I ended up calling one of your colleagues about a pituitary lesion that had been called a macroadenoma but was actually a thrombose giant aneurysm. And when I called them, they were very thankful because the patient was actually asleep and prepped for transphenoidal surgery on the table for a macroadenoma resection. Gee, okay. So uh, I didn't get a bottle of whiskey or anything for that, but I think, <laughs> I, think I probably earned it. <laughs> That's right. And uh, <clears throat> this section finally finishes with a very sensible suggestion, which is finally the rest of the image brain should also be reviewed for any unexpected findings, <laughs> which I think that's always the case because particularly if you're operating on a benign lesion to then find, you know, a glioblastoma at the end edge of the film, you're not doing anyone any favours. Yeah, it's definitely happened. I, I remember a patient with pituitary apoplexy in a low grade that was yep. apparent on the initial scans but not not reported. So it's, it's an important uh, point that you make. I remember uh, when I first started as a consultant seeing a, uh, a pituitary follow-up study and on the sagittal image there was a pericolosal aneurysm and I spotted it and I thought to myself 
I bet this hasn't been seen before. And I looked at previous reports and there were a couple and sure enough, no one had noticed it. And I was like, boy, is this patient really lucky to have me, you know, a superior radiologist to see this? And then I looked at the names of the previous reports and they were both mine. Oh, okay. So <laughs> third time lucky I managed to find Humbling it. Humbling <laughs> experience. Yeah. <laughs> Always. All right. So before we dive into the next section, another randomish question. What's your favorite and least favorite operation and why? Well, fortunately, I have quite a few favourites, but uh, I think the endoscopic endonasal removal of, of meningioma, particularly at that tuberculum location like we discussed, is a very elegant operation. You get a complete resection in a benign pathology, usually in a young patient with visual compromise. So I think that's a very rewarding operation to perform as a surgeon, and usually the outcome is good for the patient. My least favorite is probably lumboperitoneal shunt, Frank, which uh, <laughs> is generally put in, in obese patients with idiopathic intracranial hypertension. But fortunately, yeah. with the advent of stereotaxy, the VP shunt is, is now favored and we don't generally have to do the lumboperitoneal shunt too often, which is a blessing. All right. The next section of the article is getting into the meat of it, which is pituitary masses. Assessment of pituitary masses is simplified by taking into consideration the overall pattern, both location, morphology, and signal, as well as looking for specific signs. Patterns. Masses of the pituitary and immediate surrounds present in only a limited number of patterns, which are helpful in narrowing the differential. The two main groups to think of are patterns of morphology and patterns of location. The patterns of morphology, solid and enhancing pituitary region masses, versus mixed cystic and solid pituitary region masses versus cystic pituitary region masses. And instead, the pattern of location is purely intracellar pituitary mass, purely supracellar, and both supra and intracellar. A couple of additional coexisting patterns which are worth considering are pituitary region masses with intrinsic high T1 signal and abnormal enhancement or bulkiness of the pituitary infundibulum. Each of these links out to a separate article, and obviously this is way too much to go into today, but it does make me remember something that Andrew Kay, uh, professor of neurosurgery, who was head of unit when I was pretending to be a neurosurgery trainee and during your training, who said something along the lines of, you radiologists always come up with these fancy diagnoses, but you know what? It always ends up being a macroadenoma. Yeah, I mean, I think the macroadenoma is clearly the commonest pathology we treat in this region and probably makes up 80% of the operations. But there are, you know, metastases, meningioma, oncocytoma, pituitosarcoma, And these diagnoses, whilst rare, are particularly important to try to identify before surgery as the approach can be quite different, ranging from biopsy, resection, and in some cases, the use of extended approaches. So yes, uh, I think, you know, the bulk of these cases are macroadenoma, but but it's certainly worth looking hard and, and trying to identify those rarer cases. Yeah. And I think macroadenomas are very heterogeneous in how they present. Yes. And how they look on imaging, I think too. Yeah. And so in each of these morphology or patterns, macroadenomas is basically included in all of them. Yeah. But you do need to keep your wits about you for those occasions where it's not a macroadenoma, particularly 
if it's something that then doesn't need to be operated on. Yeah. Uh, for example, a metastasis, there may be metastases elsewhere. Yeah. In a metastasis with uh, visual symptoms, would you usually resect it or would you treat it with radiotherapy? I mean, they're difficult to resect completely. They're very adherent and invasive. And, and I think you're much more likely to create a new endocrine deficit with surgery. So my general approach is if there's well-established metastatic disease, they usually go straight to radiation. The fact that it's adherent is actually something that's one of the imaging findings that you should be looking for because that adherence that you see at surgery manifests as dural infiltration, irregular margins, coating or sticking to the optic chiasm, going into bone. Yeah. You can see some tumor eroding bone rather than remodeling. Up the stalk sometimes. Exactly. And so keeping an eye out for those features is really helpful. Which brings us to the next section, which is actually helpful signs. So let's see if there's any of those in there. In addition to identifying the dominant imaging pattern, close attention to a number of signs can dramatically aid you in narrowing the differential. A dural tail for meningioma hypophysitis and metastases, diaphragma cellar displacement up versus down, carotid narrowing for meningiomas, erosion of the cella rather than remodeling, suggesting a metastasis, identifying pituitary as separate usually implies non-adenoma. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think one of the advantages we have as clinicians is that the clinical picture can often help you interpret the imaging. So hypophysitis and metastasis, they generally have a more rapid clinical course with headache and endocrinopathy, whereas meningioma, much slower course with primarily visual symptoms and signs. With erosion of the cella, one of the other unusual things is prolactinoma, which is such a variable pathology and particularly in young men you can see very large lesions that have eroded the skull base widely they're typically treated with dopamine agonists but in those patients we do get worried about the development of csf rhinorrhea with the commencement of dopamine agonists i've certainly seen that a couple of times so yeah so in, in pituitary prolactinomas you definitely do see that downward growth where they almost remain confined to the shape of the sphenoid and grow into the nasopharynx and and some of them i think are true nasopharyngeal or sphenoidal tumors because of rest cells during the migration of the anterior pituitary up to the pituitary fossa there are reported cases of nasopharyngeal pituitary adenomas with a basically normal appearing anterior pituitary yeah fascinating All right. So now the most important part, at least for you, is what clinicians want to know. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things is I like a report that that describes the important findings and then commits to a diagnosis. I think a long list of differentials is not all that useful. And and, and so a little bit of commitment on the part of the radiologist, I think, is is helpful. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big believer in trying to communicate as closely as possible your degree of certainty in a diagnosis. I would love to get to the point of actually giving what my percentages are. I've bored many people over the years with this, but I think really that's what you want to know is not just could it be a macroadenoma, but is this a 99% likely adenoma versus a 50% adenoma? That is important. So if you're not going to put figures on it, I think using words that do show commitment, like almost certainly represent a macroadenoma and then leaving it at that, because we all know that there's a differential. All right. So let's see, what do we say here? 
In addition to a general description of any identified mass and the likely diagnosis, there are a number of features which should be specifically commented upon, especially if you believe surgery is likely to be indicated. And then we go on to list them. So as I go through them, maybe just chime in and uh, let me know what you think, whether you agree and how important you think it is. Sure. Okay, for masses, size in three dimensions. I, mean, I think this is this is obviously apparent when you, you're viewing the imaging, but I find it particularly helpful for my database entry, Frank, so I can, I can just oh, have okay. the three dimensions, put it straight in rather than having to measure it myself. And do you care whether it's AP... Lateral, that, do you record well, that? Well, I try just... to do that, yeah. Oh, wow, okay, because I never bother, but I will from now on. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't want to force you into that, but but it's also good for classification and, and mainly yep. just reviewing your data and, you know, trying to generate publications on the on the, the work you've done. Okay, next one is presence of necrotic or cystic areas. Yes, I, I do think this is helpful, particularly, you know, identifying apoplexy. You know, the typical hemorrhagic tumour is quite straightforward, surgically they're usually kind of liquefied hematoma but an ischemic necrotic swollen adenoma can actually be a very firm and difficult surgical proposition so so having a sense of of the necrosis slash hemorrhage is useful mm-hmm. the next one is size of the diaphragmatic opening and size of the supracellar component a narrow waist of the tumor where it passes through the diaphragm may limit the amount of tumor which can be removed via a transphenoidal approach and whether the tumour will come down at surgery with Valsalva or air into a lumbar drain. I mean, this is a very critical point in surgery. Uh, I think with angled endoscopes and extended approaches, the ability to drill off the the planum tuberculum, the reliance on Valsalva and lumbar drain is probably less than it was with the traditional microscopic approach, but it's still very relevant. It really does tell you whether this is going to be a straightforward adenoma or it's going to be a more challenging proposition. And then you can convey the risk profile to the patient. Presumably with these lesions that have a supracellar component, not entering the subarachnoid space becomes unlikely during surgery. Would that be true? Yes. I mean, I think if it's a very narrow waist, unless it's a very soft tumor, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to avoid a CSF leak. And so you have to prepare for that usually harvesting a nasoceptal flap early, drilling off, as we discussed, a more extended approach gives you much greater confidence that you've decompressed the chiasm. Leaving a small volume of residual tumour right up in the third ventricle is problematic because there's a risk of hemorrhage, acute hydrocephalus deterioration in the middle of the night. So yep. I, I prefer to be more confident that I've actually removed it all by, right. by a much more extended approach. The next one touches on subarachnoid space, and it's the presence of prolapse of the subarachnoid membrane. This occurs in front of the tumor, visible as a little cleft of CSF in front of the mass. Presence of this space increases the likelihood of an intraoperative CSF leak. Yeah, I think we've all been burnt by taking a little bit too much bone of the anterior face of the cellar, and then you can just get into that little arachnoid the CSF cleft, and it's a very annoying uh, CSF leak, but can generally be sealed off with an azoceptal flap or even a fat buttress in the cellar. But but it is important to recognize and try and avoid. The next one is a presence of invasion into the cavernous sinuses, clivus, sphenoid sinus, orbit. So I think cavernous invasion particularly will have a significant impact on the likelihood of surgical cure. You can occasionally cure patients with cavernous involvement, but it's certainly 
much harder than those patients without. And so I think having a good appreciation of the anatomy preoperatively, you can counsel the patient appropriately and manage their expectations. So I, I like to be absolutely clear where the, the disease is in the cavernous sinus, particularly disease inferior or medial to the carotid is, is accessible. Mm-hmm. That that's lateral to the carotid is, is pretty difficult to resect, even with fairly aggressive approaches, opening the cavernous sinus, using the Doppler angled scopes and instruments. It, it, it is difficult to get a complete resection of, of disease that fills the cavernous sinus. And do you like to see the KNOPS? Is it pronounced KNOPS scale? or some other metric? Uh, I mean, I think, again, that's mainly useful for reporting your outcomes. But yeah, I mean, I think having a sense of the degree of involvement of the cavernous sinus allows you to provide the endocrinologist and the patient with a likelihood of cure or not. The next one is location of normal pituitary tissue and infundibulum in relation to the mass. Yeah, so I think this is critical. Usually the normal gland is superior lateral posterior, but sometimes it's eccentric and The goal of the surgery is to resect the tumour, leave the normal gland. And I think if you can establish that plane early between the normal gland and the tumour, you have a better chance of preserving the gland. It's it's not always straightforward, but having the imaging to to sort of uh, guide you is is very useful. The other thing is I think if there's a thick amount of normal gland in front of the tumour, that often makes me wonder if it's some unusual pathology like a pituocytoma or or something different. And, and pituocytoma is a very vascular tumour, so just having that in mind is quite useful preoperatively. So a little bit of a tip for localising a stretched, compressed pituitary tissue over the surface of a mass is the post-contrast sequences are usually not that helpful because the whole thing will usually light up. And so the two sequences you really want to look at are your pre-contrast T1 to look for the posterior pituitary bright spot. Yeah. And then your dynamic contrast enhanced because, as we mentioned before, the blood supply goes to the infundibulum first before it goes to the normal pituitary gland. And usually adenomas are slower to enhance on dynamic contrast enhanced. So on those first arterial phases, you'll often see the infundibulum as a stretched line uh, over the surface that lets you identify where the pituitary tissue is, even if on the post-contrast it's all one big enhancing mass. All right. The next section is on vessels, uh, medially located or aberrant carotid arteries, aneurysms or other visible vascular anomalies, especially in the cavernous sinuses. And it again talks about entering an artery transphenoidally will not bode well for the patient, the surgery or the radiologist. Yeah. And I think we've talked about that before. Yeah. And that's probably an understatement. Yeah. Bones. The size of the bony cella, whether it's expanded or not, is useful and gives you an idea of the size of the surgical corridor. Yes, I I perform a coronal CT preoperatively in a a stereotactic study. Clearly, a large cella is a a joy for a surgeon. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The degree of pneumatization of the sphenoid, location of the sphenoid septum, and any anomalous sinus anatomy This is best assessed by CT, but is visible on post-contrast coronal T1 images. The location of the sphenoid septum helps guide the transphenoidal approach and ensures that the pituitary fossa is entered rather than adjacent cavernous sinus or orbit. The sphenoidal anatomy is important to to sort of pay attention to. The the, the intersphenoidal septum often heads off towards the optic nerve or carotid, and you need to be mindful of that. I think the conchal sphenoid, you know, the the non-pneumatized sphenoid is challenging surgically, but 
I think with good navigation systems, you can still approach the seller in those cases, but it's going to be a lot of drilling and a lot of reliance on accuracy in your navigation. So I don't think this really uh, affects how we report studies, particularly, although aberrant pneumatization of the sphenoid or ethmoids is important, but clearly surgeons need to pay a lot of attention. I was asked to review scans in a medical legal case from another part of the country many years ago, where it was clear that whoever was operating had lost their way endoscopically and had thought they were entering the pituitary fossa, but actually had entered, instead of the sphenoid sinus, had entered a posterior ethmoid air cell and then had opened the floor of the anterior cranial fossa thinking it was a pituitary fossa and biopsied gyrus rectus thinking it was a pituitary macroadenoma. Okay, last two points. Uh, Bony dehiscence over the carotid arteries in the sphenoid, better seen on CT. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's helpful to be aware of that, but obviously we're not plunging instruments into that region. I I, I don't generally see that as a major concern. Often we're removing the bone over the carotids with a diamond drill anyway. And the last point is a presence of florid sinus disease, nasal polyps, septal spurs, etc., yeah, so I think I work, you know, every case with the ENT surgeon and it's not uncommon for us to perform a septoplasty on the way in to allow us to sort of access the sphenoid well. Sinus disease is tricky. I mean, I think if you can treat it preoperatively, particularly acute sinusitis, obviously, but there are patients with polyps and difficult sinuses that are never going to be particularly good. And and I think you, you do have to decide whether, you know, you're going to offer them endoscopic surgery. I haven't found it to be a a major problem really with the endoscopic approach, yep. sometimes a little bit more bleeding. We often treat these patients with steroids preoperatively. Fantastic. Well, James, we made it. Okay. I think that was really useful. Actually, it's going to change how I report my studies here and there, which is good. Yeah, the other thing I, I was going to ask about was post-operative imaging, Frank, I think. Yes. Now, the two the two points I, I wanted to make is the, the nasoceptal flap, I think, is a, you know, a, a device that we've been using yep. for probably 15, 20 years now. It's often an enhancing mass of tissue that sits under the cellar. And I've certainly seen reports of that being residual tumour, yep. recurrent tumour. And I think the radiologist needs to be aware of, of what that looks like. And the other thing is the commitment, again, to sort of a, a definitive answer as to whether there's residual or no residual tumour, because I think that obviously has a big impact on the patient and the endocrinologist and the follow-up in the longer term. Yeah, so that's interesting because... My attitude to these situations where you're not sure, because sometimes there is some hypo-enhancing tissue yep. laterally, roughly where there was tumor, but you're not really sure whether it is tumor or not, and it's early on and it hasn't grown. Yep. It, it is not possible to tell definitively. My sort of way of thinking about it is, will what I say dramatically change what happens to the patient? And if the answer is no, then I err on the side of not stressing the patient out for the next year. Yep. My approach, and, and I might be wrong, so please correct me, but it's, well, they're going to be followed up endocrinologically. They're going to be followed up with imaging again. They're going to be seeing the endocrinologist and probably the surgeon again. And if I've undercalled a small amount of residual adenoma, it's okay, it'll be caught next time. And meanwhile, the patient's not freaking out about having recurrent cancer is that what you'd prefer me to do uh look i think there's there is a difficulty when you've got a discrete adenoma you get an extra capsular removal 
And then the early post-op scan, I typically do it at three months, shows a little hypo-enhancing area, which I think is really just the cavity. And it's often reported as, hmm. you know, residual tumour. Yeah, it can be frustrating if you've told the patient you've taken the tumour out and then... Well, that's the thing. I mean, most of these tumours are either endocrinologically active, in which case you'll know about it yep. through other means, or they're non-functioning and slow-growing. And so you've got ample opportunity to to notice later. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's one of the things we should think about with functioning adenomas is, say, for acromegaly, if we put the IGF-1 number on the request form, you know, if the IGF-1 number is normal, yeah. then that could at least guide you to some degree in the report as well. Yeah, I think we cause harm sometimes by stressing patients out unnecessarily where there's no change in management. Because if it is definitely residual, you're not going to rush back in and do anything, right? No, you're not. Not unless it, it grows and becomes symptomatic. And you're still going to follow them up. Yeah. So let them enjoy another year. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Excellent, James. Well, thank you very much. We might have you back on for another clinician's approach because I find these very helpful. Good. And uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks for having me, Frank. It was enjoyable. Okay, so what did you think, Andrew? Did I do good? You did good. I will say, though, your token effort at doing the random questions was noted. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> like, oh, oh, Andrew Dixon's making me do this. Just two guys who wanted to talk about the pituitary. That's what it was. We really did. And James wasn't all that into the random questions. Yeah, well. Yeah, well He's a yeah. serious surgeon. He did sound like a surgeon. I've got a brother who's a surgeon and he reminded me very much of my brother. <laughs> but it was fantastic, all of that clinical context that gets added in there. I've jotted down a few things that, mm-hmm. that I really enjoyed or wanted to touch on here. So that little bit where you were speaking about microadenomas and you said that you say to your trainees, if you're in any doubt, leave room in your report for the next person to make mm-hmm. the definitive assessment. I feel this all the time with microadenomas. I'm looking at follow-up scans and someone's called a microadenoma and you're kind of like, mm, there's a little bit maybe of yeah. hypo-enhancement here and like, you know, there's a lot of dubious ones out there. So I think that's a really important concept that you don't have to be making a definitive call if it's not obvious, then just kind of mention that it, that it is vague, possibly represents, and then, um, you know, you've always got those follow-up opportunities. Yeah, because otherwise on that follow-up one, you end up saying things like, the previously reported microadenoma is not yeah. visible today. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, what does that mean? It's, yeah. It hasn't just disappeared. Or you're forced to say that the person before you was wrong, which mm. always feels awkward, especially if it's, you know, someone senior or someone that you know. Um, yeah, so leaving room for not labeling patients, I think is important. And this is not a unique situation, both in neuroradiology and in other areas, there are vagaries. I'm sure the chest people find this all the time, right? I reckon they're called microadenomas for a reason because you'd need a (laughs) microscope essentially sometimes to spot them. The other thing I've written down here is the bitemporal hemianopia in pregnancy. It just seems like a design flaw, doesn't it? That, you know, you can get pregnant and then suddenly... (laughs) You can't see properly just because you're pregnant. Doesn't sound right. There's a lot about pregnancy that you think, (laughs) boy, oh boy, it's amazing anyone does it. (laughs) One thing that you guys briefly mentioned, but I don't think you described kind of what it means, is the Mm -hmm. term prefixed and postfixed when we're talking about the position of the optic chiasm. Do you want to run through that quickly? 
Right. Yeah, that's an important topic. And it's probably something that doesn't get reported as often as it should be. It refers to the position of the optic chiasm relative to the opening in the diaphragm cella. And mm-hmm. therefore, whether or not a pituitary mass that extends up into the supracellar cistern will compress the chiasm or not. And also where the chiasm is located relative to that mass surgically, which can be really important depending on the approach. So in most situations and the normal sort of anatomy, the optic chiasm is, again, design flaw, located directly above the diaphragma cella so that any mass coming up will compress it. But in about 15% of cases, the chiasm will be located anteriorly, and that's called Mm -hmm. prefixed. And 15% of cases, it will be located posteriorly, so postfixed. This isn't that it's behind the infundibulum. The infundibulum is still behind the chiasm. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those pituitaries where the infundibulum runs really quite horizontally forward before going into the pituitary fossa. I remember years ago being in a a skull base kind of meeting and the the surgeon said, Andrew, is that prefixed or is it postfixed? And I, at that point in time, I had no idea what that term meant. And so I just had to kind of... Uh, yes, it's hard yeah, to tell maybe. because of how case space is filled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's just have a little look at where the chiasm is. Um, and so and so here's the chiasm and then uh, here's the pituitary. And he's like, oh, okay, looks looks prefixed. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, prefixed. <laughs> you, you talked about the vast majority of lesions in the pituitary fossa or even in the supracellular region are macroadenomas. Mm-hmm. And so your tendency should be towards calling everything a macroadenoma. I remember this case only a few years ago where we were in the the neuro-oncology meeting and there was this supracellar lesion. also had a bit of pituitary involvement, but predominantly supracellar. Everyone was calling it a macroadenoma. And I looked at it and I thought, gee, the enhancement doesn't look like the enhancement that we usually see with macroadenomas. And because I remember this talk from you, Gaylord, where you spoke <laughs> about intracranial enhancement and the macroadenomas often have this kind of spotty, looks like the static on a television screen, you know, back in, in analog days. That's right. That kind of noisy appearance to them on the post contrast. And this had quite vivid homogeneous enhancement. And I remember saying, you know, everyone's very convinced that this is a macroadenoma. Mm-hmm. I remember just saying, oh, I wonder whether this could be lymphocytic hypophysitis it just doesn't quite have the enhancement characteristics that i expect for a macro everybody heard it everybody ignored it and (laughs) went on had the surgery came back as lymphocytic hypophysitis now even when i said it at the time i thought it's still probably not going to be it's still going to be a macro but i thought i'll just put it out there just in case anyway it comes back and then everybody's like oh andrew andrew that was actually lymphocytic hypophysitis how did you know that i was like yes (laughs) it was a, a moment of glory there's a real art form in making your conclusion or offering opinions in a sort of nostradamus unfalsifiable way that's right yeah yeah, no, they wouldn't have remembered. If it came back as a macro, they wouldn't have remembered that Andrew said something a little bit outrageous. But when it yeah. does come back as that outrageous thing, it's like, wow, how did everybody in the room had no idea except this one guy who just said, mm, I wonder whether that could be lymphocytic hypothesitis and then ducked his head back down. <laughs> um, one of the other things that I, we often describe lesions as being necrotic, mm. but just to hear that that actually does influence the surgical approach or knowing that it's necrotic means it's more likely to be solid, more likely to cause some problems in in getting it I found that really interesting because I wouldn't have guessed that a necrotic adenoma was tougher. I would have thought it was going to be softer and you just use the big sucker instead of the little sucker to get it out. So I think that sort of clinical input is uh, 
is important. And it's something that you wouldn't necessarily know. The other thing that was interesting is uh, we'll just make a series, you know, six vertical incisions or something in the in the pituitary until you find it and then just cut away the sides and the bottom and then hope that it's in there. You know, like yeah. that kind of, from our perspective, you think, oh, the surgery must be very, very precise and delicate. And then <laughs> and then from their perspective, they're like, oh, no, I just make six incisions and then have a little look around. And then if it's not here, try Rummage around and, in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Dixon, let's wrap this up. How yes. can people get in contact with us? Oh, you've done my bit. Turn the table. Well, we are at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram. I should say on X and Instagram, as well as mm. Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. You can email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and feedback. In particular, I think we'd love to hear if you find this sort of clinical perspective useful because I'm sure between Andrew and I, we can rustle up some other clinicians and surgeons to do some readfuls with us. And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter (laughs) via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. Radiopedia 2024 is coming up very soon, just in 12 months. (laughs) I know, it's super quick. (laughs) And by purchasing a pass or becoming a supporter, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 low- and middle-income countries. And, And what else can people do to help us out, Frank? And you can also help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of that your choosing. Is correct. Well, thank you very much, Gaylard, for preparing this episode today. I would have been really struggling without it. I'll try and get back on board for the next one. I'll try and dig something out, put in a big effort, and maybe even quiz you on something, mate. Oh, very fun. <laughs> fun. Very fun. <laughs> and we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay rad, everyone. Stay rad. That's about my energy level too. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get those snakes that can only bite you between the toes and between the fingers. Uh, and we'll see you in a fortnight. We're going to do yes. it every second week now. See ya. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.